there's no one field that's trained to cover everything. Hi, thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. I'm Farah White. And I'm Grant Brenner. We are psychiatrists on a mission to educate and advocate for mental health and overall well-being. In addition to the obvious, we focus on the subtle, often unspoken dimensions of human experience, the so-called doorknob comments people often make just as they are leaving their therapist's office. We seek to dispel misconceptions while offering useful perspectives through open and honest conversation. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, and requests. Hi, today we're going to talk about a very important subject, is the intersection of mental health and wellness. Traditionally, medicine focuses on disease or pathology, as we call it. Although in our training, we're taught that prevention is the best medicine, and a lot of doctors give important wellness or lifestyle advice. For example, to exercise regularly and eat well, rather than simply take medications if you have a problem like high cholesterol or blood pressure. Within mainstream medicine, there isn't as much room carved out for wellness and personal growth and development. This has been on my mind a lot recently because a company that I co-founded and of which I'm the CEO has recently launched a membership program so that we can combine psychiatry, therapy, wellness, and wellness coaching and services. That company is called Neighborhood Psychiatry, but in keeping with fulfilling our mission and moving forward in our mission, we're now using the name Neighborhood Psychiatry and Wellness. This is really not just a name change, but it, it really brings home the philosophical change. Now, I'm happy to talk about this with Farah, because I know in your private practice, your focus goes well beyond the what has become a very narrow definition of psychiatry, seeing patients diagnosing psychiatric problems, giving them medication, and having everything else taken care of by someone else, like another therapist. I know you do a lot of personal development work, as do a lot of psychiatrists. Um, the other thing I would say about this, just by way of prefacing the conversation, is that the personal growth and wellness industry is huge. It's billions or trillions of dollar industry. And so there's a huge unmet need that people have. And it seems to me to make sense that people who are skilled and well-trained should be leading the conversation on how to pull together illness and wellness. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think a lot of times that traditionally people would only seek out therapy or psychiatric care if they had you know, some really uncomfortable symptoms or something was going sort of wrong in their life, something that they felt they needed to fix. And I think there's been a shift and maybe it's generational. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where people just want to make sure that they feel as good as they can feel or that they're getting the most they can out of life or relationships and, you know, wanting professional help to kind of ensure that. And it's, it's hard to find that, I think. A lot of times therapists, uh, myself included, you know, are trained not to quote unquote give advice, for example. And this goes way back to the days of Freud, when the idea of giving people suggestions was considered maybe a misuse of authority. And the idea that it's preferable in a lot of ways for people to use insight and figure out what they need equips them in some ways better. And, and yet sometimes we know that people need more direction and more expert advice and consultation. 
this becomes important. I'm thinking about the idea of expertise. And so a lot of different fields are trained well in different areas, but there's no one field that's trained to cover everything. And so if you think about building a model, well, you, you can have someone who does private practice who offers a great many things. And a lot of people do that and they're trained very diversely as, as for example, you are, they have a variety of skill sets. But when people are looking for treatment within conventional care settings, the model is more of an integrated model where you can go to one place where the people work together and have different people working collaboratively on different parts of, 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 mm-hmm. of issues. And I think that probably delivers a really, you know, I, I think it's possible for the patient to get a, a good experience either way. I think the problem is when we let illness or pathology dictate all of our decision-making without an eye to uh, sort of, we're just playing catch up and trying to put out fires, which is, I think is what a lot of medicine sometimes feels like. We miss these moments where we could make a really big difference, let's say down the line or in the patient's future. Yeah, I agree. You have to know how to shift gears. People often start treatment in crisis, and then later on, you start to see that there's other issues that need to be addressed, which may have precipitated the crisis. It may be the way they're living. It may be a relationship that they're in that's Mm -hmm. problematic. It may be that they're not happy professionally. It may be that they have an untreated medical or psychiatric problem, but a lot of times you don't know until the dust settles. Right. Or, yeah, it may be also that they're having a completely healthy reaction to a difficult moment in their life, you know, and things come up and where actually getting support around it is a sign, I think, of good health and of openness. You know, you're saying that there may be uh, reactions to stressors, which there's several stressors that people notoriously have, have difficulty dealing with. Some of them are problematic, like loss of a job or a relationship problem. Some of them are joyful, like adding a new member to the family, but Mm -hmm. feeling overloaded. And people's response to stress is normal, right? To a certain extent, to have difficulty, to have trouble sleeping or to feel worried. And then there's a point where it can go beyond a normal stress reaction and, and become sort of more problematic. But are you saying there's not necessarily sort of another problem beyond, okay, maybe I just need to work on my coping or how I respond to stress. Exactly. I mean, there, there might be something underlying, but there also might not be. Um, and I think that it's important to be able to say, well, kind of what's happening to you and what you're feeling while it's negative or sad or overwhelming or whatever it might be is not a sign that there's something that needs to be treated here. And I think that for you moving from neighborhood psychiatry to neighborhood psychiatry and wellness, what you're saying is, I guess you're challenging this idea that, you know, if you, if you're a psychiatrist and you have an SSRI, right, that's your hammer, everything looks like depression or anxiety, that's the nail. And that model might not be right for everyone. Yeah, that's the traditional biomedical model where you're identifying and treating an illness, which, which I think is often the case. But a lot of times there's something in the family system, as you're saying, 
there may be um, the family has difficulty expressing emotions and supporting one another. Mm -hmm. Though you could say, well, that's pathological or dysfunctional in the family system. Problem is that people aren't comfortable expressing emotions or seeking help. But that's a different kind of problem than you have an abnormality, your body can't produce insulin in the case right. of diabetes, or yeah. even you have a strong biological depression because you have um, different serotonin genes mm -hmm. or NMDA genes or DDNF gene problems. Okay. We, don't, we don't really diagnose based on, on genetic risk factors, but some families, for example, have very high rates of heritability of depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and that's very different from when there's something in the social system. Yeah, and frankly, it's, it's much rarer. That's why a good history is really important. I think that's what sets psychiatry kind of apart from other parts of medicine. We have these longer appointments where we get to know our patients and their families and whether or not something is you know, normal for them or normal for their family system. That's what I always like to say is like, well, you're kind of the authority on you, but it's my job to figure out if there's something here that needs to be treated or if you just need a little bit of support or redirection. And it's more than just getting the history. It's also having the, the background professionally right. to put it together and make sense of it and uh, under, understand what the implications are for evaluation and treatment. So one thing that is a little controversial are interdisciplinary issues. You're, you're alluding to it by mentioning psychiatry, like we, we tend to do this really well. Maybe not everyone is trained that way. On the other hand, there are things that maybe we aren't trained to do that other people do well. Uh, family therapy, for example, I had very little family therapy training. If I wanted to do family therapy, I would, I would, I would get additional training or psychoanalytic training. I, we had some training in psychoanalytic therapy, but I did four additional years of training in psychoanalysis in, in order to get good at that kind of therapy. And likewise for other, other forms of therapy, but you get into a lot of like almost turf wars where instead of people working together, they sort of blame and point fingers at each other. So psychiatrists and therapists don't always get along. Therapists and coaches don't always get along. Mm -hmm. And some of it has to do with, I'd say some kind of shared training where even if we have different areas of expertise, number one, we understand where the limits are for what we do. Like, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to perform surgery on someone. A therapist maybe isn't in a position to talk about medication choices, though sometimes psychiatrists don't like it if a therapist says, hey, have you thought about this medication? And the psychiatrist says, that's not a good medication for this patient. Like stay in your lane, right? I see that a lot mm. on, on Facebook or a, a coach starts offering therapy, but hasn't been trained in how to handle some of the things that might come up in therapy or a therapist gives advice on how to handle something very specific like executive function. And maybe they would want to refer to someone trained to help people with executive function coaching. Um, maybe, but... I have to say, and you probably are not going to like my response to this, but this is not necessarily a problem that's like just within medicine or within our field. I think in general, because of the availability of resources, specialization, um, specialization social media, anyone can be 
uh, okay, maybe not anyone can be a board certified psychiatrist, but anyone can decide they want to learn about psychiatric medication. Anyone, you know, let's say who's in recovery can decide they want to sponsor someone who's new to the program. It's very, very difficult when we try to like tease apart or tell people if, if the focus is on, well, stay in your lane, we might not be hearing each other in the right way. Like, well, that's my point. That closes down interdisciplinary right. dialogue. And if you have a system in place so that people can work collaboratively and understand the boundaries and the different types yeah. of services they offer and, and work together, you know, that's ideal. And there's a, there's a difference between, you know, reading a psychopharmacology textbook or blog and having the years of apprenticeship. Oh, absolutely. Right? But I think that sometimes people are so narcissistically injured by a suggestion that somebody might make. And it, maybe it's coming from a therapist, but maybe it's coming from, hey, you know what? My roommate is on Zoloft and she's doing really well. So can I be on Zoloft too? And then that becomes part of the conversation and part of, you know, well, your care is really individualized and, and here's why um, you're not a, a candidate for this, or I don't, you know, believe you to be. But I have also taken suggestions from patients or from therapists and, you know, found that it worked out really well. Yeah, I think that open-mindedness is helpful and the stay in your lane response, regardless of the profession, I think is dysfunctional in general, um, especially and particularly if you don't know where the other person was coming from. And so I think in general, if unless you know it to be a problem, it's safer to to give people the benefit of the doubt. And, and it may very well have been like you're saying, like, hey, maybe this will help. I know someone who did really well. It, it might be better to phrase it in the form of a question with the context. Hey, I know someone who took this new medication is the patient we're working with together a candidate for this or no? And, and that may be more likely to work, you know, and that's very different from making a suggestion. Right. Uh, but certainly that uh, a sort of a well-intentioned and, and possibly valid question may be interpreted as a, a turf violation when it's not. The main thing for patients to know when it comes to this kind of stuff, because I think people who are very into personal wellness, they do a lot of like exploratory work. So they'll try things like acupuncture or, or life coaching or dating, you know, meet with a dating coach. I usually do encourage that kind of thing. I also tell patients, well, I want to speak to anyone who you feel like really understands you so I can get a sense of what that relationship is like because it offers a lot of information about, well, you keep going back to this person or you have a relationship or you feel like this one person is helpful, you know, I want to know why. Where do you draw the line though? And, and what are you really after? Because if they told you they met with a friend every week or they spoke with a business mentor every month and they didn't have like a formal relationship, you probably wouldn't say, oh, I'd like to speak with, you know, your, your mentor, you know, from the business world. Maybe not, but I usually will say it's it's helpful for me to speak to someone who you feel like really understands you, knows what's what's going on here, and who would you like that person to be? But one thing is the cert the certification, right? The training of the people who you know someone 
might be working with if they're working with more than one person. And so just like you'd want to know if your physician is well-trained or your nurse practitioner is well-trained mm -hmm. or if they have proper supervision or what is your therapist doing, um, you would want to know what a coach's certification is, especially in industries that aren't well-regulated yet. And so one of the reasons you might want to speak with someone is also to see what you think of them professionally. Right. In, in order to serve your patient best, particularly if there's a concern that it might interfere with their care. And at the same time, to stand the best chance of having it serve their care. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think if people are going to get into conflict, and this has happened very few times with me where I felt like I just couldn't see eye to eye or it was going to be hard to work with a particular outside therapist type. <laughs> not just not just a coach, but it also could be a therapist too. If, mm -hmm. if you're not able to practice together, if you have significant differences in the way you think about clinical care, it's going to lead to boundary violations. See also yeah. our, our podcast with Jacob Appel about non-sexual boundary violations. And you have an obligation to not, maybe, not to put your patient in the middle. Right. And to maybe then take yourself off the case because then the patient can find, let's say someone, a psychiatrist who's more in alignment with their therapist's view of how things should go. So I think it's important and I think one of the reasons you're saying it's important to connect with other people involved in care, not exactly treatment, right? Because coaches don't treat patients. They have clients. There's professional differences. We want to understand the credentials of anyone who we're working with, whether it's a psychiatrist, a nurse practitioner, a therapist, a coach, or you know, an accountant or a lawyer. Do you ever find that people don't understand or push back on giving you consent to talk with these other people? And how do you explain why it might be important to make sure that there's an, like an ecosystem of care yeah. where you have access to other people? Because a lot of times, and sometimes this is a problem for people, they, they kind of silo the different parts of their lives. And if they do that with people who are helping them deal with certain issues, sometimes it's also reflective that they do that, you know, in work and personal settings. So what do you think about that? Right. I mean, sometimes people are just not comfortable letting their primary care doctor know that they're seeing a psychiatrist. Usually if they're worried about, let's say me speaking to a parent, I frame it as, well, this is just an opportunity for me to get more information about how to help you. And if the trust isn't there, I don't push it. Frankly, I might say that I can't really do as great of a job as, as I might otherwise do, because sometimes those conversations yield really, really important tidbits that, that are going to help the patient. And uh, I also feel like most people know that I would never disclose anything. It's kind of like you have to trust the judgment of the people that you work with not to disclose anything too personal. Just because I have a patient's permission to talk to someone doesn't mean I would ever bring up topics that are not relevant to their work together or something that I feel is private and shameful, you know, but I think it goes along with what is, what, you know, the level of trust in the relationship. The level of trust. And then 
you know, what information is necessary. Mm -hmm. So primary care doctors or coaches don't need to know everything personal. No. And then, but there's and, some things that they really do need to know. Right. They need to know if we start a new medication. Um, they don't need to necessarily know why we could start something for intrusive thoughts, but they don't need to know what those thoughts are. And frankly, uh, I don't know what those other, you know, practitioners, what their note keeping or security level is like. So I always err on the side of caution. And I think most of my patients probably just know that intuitively. In terms um, of pr protecting personal health information, yeah. and very personal things. Yeah. Like, likewise with documentation. Right. Um, we, know, we know nowadays, you know, insurance companies look at notes mm. and patients can look at notes. And so some, someone who's reviewing the case, you know, at the insurance company doesn't need to know very personal details. Right. Right. So I think part of it is how we decide to document and you know, the other really big part of it, and this is something I think is that's important for patients, is that they should always feel comfortable asking about, you know, what does their chart look like, or what are someone's creden um, credentials or certifications, and anyone who is not really open to that kind of a conversation is probably not someone who's trustworthy. Well, that's... But pretty strong and, and often maybe is the case, but there may be other reasons why they're not comfortable. It may be a training issue. It, it may not be whether they're trustworthy or not. You're talking a lot about trust today, which I think is important though. Yeah. yeah, because I think it's the foundation of a lot of the work that we do. And there's no reason not to be open about these things. Even people that, let's say, uh, might be a you know, recovery coach with no formal education other than their own recovery can usually draw on that and be very effective. But if they sort of dance around the question, then I would, I would wonder why, uh, why is someone pretend, pretending to be someone that they're not? I do think when we put our, <laughs> sorry, what, what was that? I'm, I'm just trying to follow what you're saying. What is, what is the pretending they're not? Who is pretending they're well, what? Well, what I'm saying is people should be open about their level, their certifications or level of education, because to me, it's not the most significant thing. The most significant thing is the trust and the openness and the transparency. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a factor, which is, you know, how, how good is the person at what they do? Because you know, formal training is not always reflective of how good a person is at what they do. Right. Uh, but I, I agree. And, you know, it's mandated by state regulation that licensed uh, clinicians or, you know, or haircutters for that matter are required to publicly post yeah. their certification. And that doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a good haircut, though. <laughs> True, but it guarantees that they're going to meet some standard of either cleanliness or, you know. Um, well, or, or that they were at least trained to meet that standard, yeah. whether or not they actually okay. meet the standard. They might have the certificate on the wall, but if you see sort of combs laying around covered in like, you know, cut hair and they're not in that, you know, okay. blue thing with the, the barbicide, the, yeah. the barbicide with the comb juice, you know, you might be like, hmm. Yeah. And then, you, and then nowadays, like you were saying before, you'll Google it and you'll be like, 
you're required by law to use barbicide. Like, what's up with yeah. that? But a lot of people don't ask the questions. Right. Whether and it's they... about trust, whether it's about training, whether it's about skill, people are shy to ask. Yeah, okay. and I think that's something right? that we look at, right? It might be that it, it's just part of their nature. It might be that people, you know, react negatively to that when they have questioned others in the past, but... Right, like you maybe know. their parents wouldn't answer questions and got really mad if they asked. Exactly, exactly. But I think that's a very good point that we should feel free to ask these questions. And I guess, um, you know, that's that's a very good starting point. Well, so, so getting back to where we started, this idea of wellness and mental health and mental wellness and in the need for good interdisciplinary collaboration. Yeah, yeah. You know, and what are the goals, right, that people come right. to treatment for? They may want to treat their depression, but they may also want to, like, live and flourish more fully. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How do you think about that? And I think whatever those goals are, you know, they should feel like uh, their doctors, their coaches, their therapists are on the same page um, and on their team and working together. That's how change happens. So I wonder if we're really all trained to think about it that way. And I think some people will, you know, potentially hear a conversation like this and say, you know, that's a first world problem. You have to have a lot already. You have to have a lot of resources. You have to have a lot of privilege. You have to have a lot of basic problems out of the way to be thinking about how to live like the well-lived life, yeah. um, to be focused on what Aristotle called eudaimonia. Mm -hmm. um, meaningful life through the virtue of living well. Agree, agree. But I think that's something that's um, sort of aspirational, right? And what I want actually for all of my patients and, and the people in my life, you know? So I'm thinking, well, when is that a useful idea? And, and when might it make people feel worse? So, you know, let's, let's leave that as a question, maybe for a follow-up conversation when does striving for sort of a fuller, richer life, when is the right time to be thinking about that? Is it earlier on, even if there are other stressors, or will that make people feel worse that that's so far out of reach, like don't even yeah. bring that up? Or yeah. is it an idea that you want aspirationally, even if you can't make it a right. reality yet? Exactly. Well, very good question. And I think we should certainly... Um, do a follow-up where we uh, address that. Very good. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. We're committed to bringing you new episodes with great guests. Please take a moment to share your thoughts. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Instagram at Doorknob Comments. Remember, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any other type of medicine. This is not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thank you for listening.